Please listen carefully. Welcome to Autism in the Wild, the show that talks about what it's really like living with autism. Here are your hosts, Noah and Chris. Alright, welcome to another episode of Autism in the Wild. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Noah. Hey, Noah, why don't you introduce today's guest? Okay, so today's guest is a mental health clinician named Sean. He works with people on the spectrum, uh, ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder, all that fun stuff. And he uses something called motivational interviewing to help people with ASD. And we know absolutely nothing about this. And so it'll be fun for us to figure out what this is and for you listeners at home too. Anyway, Sean, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. So I'm Sean. I'm I'm a dad and I am a person living with autism and I practice behavioral health therapy for a community health center here in northwestern Wisconsin. And I, like you said, I use motivational interviewing um, to work with some people with autism who have autism and comorbid mental health conditions. Thanks, Sean. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Um, so I'm Sean. I got diagnosed with autism in 18. So I, I didn't really grow up like knowing I had autism. So part of it was sort of this growth experience over my college years sort of coming into like, oh, I have autism. Like I got diagnosed at 18 and it didn't really sink in that it was a thing till a little later. Um, and so I kind of grew up in college learning about, okay, so what does this diagnosis mean? Like the first thing that was really obvious was that I sort of have a binary view of the world where I tend to see things in black and white. So I can be a little rigid in my thinking patterns. And so that kind of came out. And then after I got married and moved out to Wisconsin, it became more clear that I tend to ruminate on things. I used to ruminate on grad school a lot because I thought it would help me. And ultimately it did because it got me to where I am today to being able to help people with autism. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I, I came into autism. What else do you guys want to know about just sort of like my professional experience or are we thinking more of the personal side? Great. Uh, Sean, why don't you, Talk about what led you down the path of becoming a behavioral therapist. What got you started? I got into mental health about a year and two months ago. Um, but I was a social worker before that. So I graduated in 2012. Um, and I got a job as a compliance coordinator at a assisted living corporation here in Northwestern Con- or Wisconsin in 2015. I worked there for about a year. At serving hands and then I started working for the state the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation and they coordinate employment services for people with disabilities so people with mental health physical disabilities developmental disabilities so I while I was working there I got promoted to a grant um, called Wisconsin Promise and so my caseload was entirely people who had social security as uh, and, but wanted to get jobs and they were teenagers. And so I worked with these people for a year um, on this grant and we helped them 
find, gain, and advance in employment, plus their family members. So it was really cool because it was a family systems model. Um, and so I went to grad school for my MSW, which means I couldn't work in voc rehab, but I really like the clinical element of it um, because Wisconsin's voc rehab counselors are all licensed professional counselors. And it's a licensing thing, but you have to have that specific sort of license to practice there. So I was kind of like bummed. So I went on to try being a social worker in a nursing home, realized that wasn't for me. And so then I got into behavioral health. It was kind of not what I intended to do because I wanted to be a policy analyst, but I ended up realizing how much I hate that. And because I have two little boys that I want to take care of half the time, that being a policy analyst really wasn't an option. And so I ended up going into mental health because I really like talking to people and helping people. Um, this focus on autism kind of came because there aren't a lot of people in mental health working with people with autism. So it's an incredibly underserved population. And I just think there's so much work we have to do for people with autism in this sort of realm. So what exactly is motivational interviewing? So motivational interviewing, um, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain it, but so the way, so the creators are two psychologists named Steve Miller and, or Will Miller and Stephen Rolnick, and they're psychologists who work in the field of addictions. And so MI is a collaborative goal-oriented style of communication with particular attention to the language of change. It is designed to strengthen personal motivation in for a commitment to a specific goal by listening and exploring the person's reasons for change within an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. And so really an easy way to think about MI is that it's change oriented sort of discussion. Like people are at these various stages of either being resistant, ambivalent, or ready to make change in their life. And there's sort of specific language um, and ways people talk. And so the way I like to explain it is MI is very much about connecting with a person's heart, not really about winning an argument. Like it's about connecting with that person, not trying to persuade them per se, but let them helping them consider their own reasons for change. Does that sort of explain it? Yeah, that does. Thank you. Who would be a typical patient? Like what would be a good age range? And who would be a good candidate for motivational interviewing? Typically, for someone to be used with motivational interviewing, I tend to look at, like, um, like I see people from ages five to sort of as high as they go. But for motivational interviewing, really what I look for is if someone is, like, what is their verbal capacity? Because so much of autism, the diagnosis of autism is their ability to use language. So generally anyone in that range of like 15, 16 to say 40 or 50, um, I, I would be willing to go older, but I just haven't run into that yet in my clinical practice. But um, generally somebody with depression or anxiety, um, and there's different kinds of depression and anxiety. Um, occasionally, I think people with PTSD in terms of like building some stabilization skills could be really good candidates for motivational interviewing, but those are sort of the three diagnoses. Occasionally ADHD, but not so much, but really it's that anxiety and depression along with that autism that really make good candidates and whatever 
variation of anxiety or depression they might have. So would it be helpful if I gave you guys sort of like a real world example of somebody that yeah. I might work with? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example of somebody with depression I might work with. We'll call him Billy. So Billy is an 18-year-old male who's cutting himself because it helps him calm down. He has an intense interest in fantasy baseball, and now all of a sudden he's no longer interested in it. He also gets in fights with siblings because he's agitated, and he's extremely tired and has difficulty sleeping for six or seven of the past nights. Um or six out of seven of the past nights. He reports getting in these fights because he's upset about going back to school, kind of in the midst of all this COVID stuff. So when we think about sort of like, what are the depressive symptoms versus that are just like common for anybody versus what are the ASD sort of depression symptoms? The presentation looks a little different than it would in somebody without autism. Because when we think about autism, we think about this intense interest in intense interest in sub subject matter. So in Billy's case, it was fantasy baseball. And so he's no longer into it all of a sudden. So that's, that's kind of a big red flag. Like, Hey, this kid with this adult with autism or this 18 year old with autism um, is no longer really intensely interested in that subject. And the fact that he's getting in fights might be because he's got poor sleep, which is probably making things worse. But anger shows up as a primary emotion. So it's it's like a top-layer emotion versus, like, sadness, which is a lower emotion. And so sometimes in, like, higher-functioning young adults with autism, you'll see this sort of angry, I hate the world, I'm going to cut because it gives me control, which is kind of another normal symptom of depression and difficulty with sleep. And so that might be an example of somebody I might work with. So what are some of the challenges that come with your profession and with motivational interviewing on a daily basis? So one of the, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, but some of the challenges in being a mental health professional, especially in like specializing with people with autism is really that um, people with autism are pretty rational. So, MI is very much about feelings and going to a place of of feeling. And sometimes it can be really difficult to get a read on the autistic client, whether or not they're really, like, buying what I'm putting down. So, like, if I throw out solutions, they'll usually tell me when I'm wrong, which I'm really grateful for because there's sort of that very directness with people with autism. But it can be kind of difficult to sink teeth in and find a port of entry when somebody's main way of connecting is rational and logic because MI kind of, it kind of hijacks that. Um, and so MI kind of goes around that and connects to like, what is this person's feeling about this experience? Whether it's like to stop cutting, like the person with autism might like weigh the pros and cons out, which is totally something you can do in MI, but very much it's about looking for that change talk and minimizing that sustained talk. So it might come out like, Hey, I really think I should, I should stop cutting, but it feels so good. And I might respond with something like it feels good to cut, but I really think you should stop cutting. And I, I sort of do that because at the front end, we're just kind of addressing what they're saying. And at the same time, we're kind of moving back to that change talk. And 
in a lot of ways, we're kind of moving people towards that change, like stopping cutting, which can be really negative for a teenager. Yeah, that's really interesting, Sean. So how many sessions would you typically spend with a patient? Um, generally, my rule of thumb for people with autism is, and kind of what the data shows is like, that it takes longer for people with autism to develop a new skill. But generally when they do, they apply it more globally. So like it might be a while before I see any change, but then when I see that change, I see it all over the place. Does that make sense? So like a couple of people I might work with for like say seven, eight months before we really see that movement from cutting to not cutting, or maybe it'll go real fast. It's really, just kind of when are they ready to make that change? It's not really something we force or can predict very well. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the movie Goodwill Hunting, where the the main character had to go to therapy because he got in trouble, and it took several sessions before he was willing to talk to the therapist, and then after a while, they finally started making some breakthroughs it's kind of a rewardless process at first. Like, I mean, I like part of how I practice is um, I try to use deliberate practice um, and solicit feedback at the end of my sessions, but people with autism can be very direct and it can be a little daunting because it's like, this is pointless. This isn't helping. Um, And then other weeks it's like, it's, it's like magic. Like it just, it moves. So it's a really different flow than say like, CBT or EMDR where it's very structured and you kind of know what you're looking for. Do you feel like you have more credibility with your patients because you yourself have autism? I think it builds, I think it opens the door. So I think it like, I don't think it makes me like practice better with people with autism because I have autism. I think like when someone comes in and they tell me they've been to nine other therapists and none of them understand autism. I'm like, well, I have autism. It like, it immediately piques their interest. And that's all I need to sort of get in there and sort of try to start connecting with them and their experience. And like, how does their experience fit the research? And where do we kind of want to go with this? Because I think when a lot of times what I see in the clients I work with is they've been to a lot of therapists who really don't know what they're doing, or they've had a really negative experience with the mental health system. I can't tell you how many times I've heard the experience that like, I went into a therapist, they sent me to an inpatient unit, they escalated me to the state, like, to like a state hospital kind of situation. And then it took me a while to get out. Like there is, it is a hard, it's hard to find a good practitioner. So I think by saying I have autism, it just lends enough credibility that I can sort of make the argument that, hey, this could be really beneficial for you. Seems that it would help break down some barriers to the conversation. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think it really makes it, I mean, sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm not. Like sometimes people are like, this isn't for me, it's not a good fit, and so it goes. But most of the time, what I experience with people with autism is like, just like you're saying, it does break down that barrier because they have had a hard experience with the mental health system, but they still feel like they need a place they can come and feel safe to talk about what's going on in their life. Have there been any surprises over the course of your career as a, 
as a mental health professional that have kind of thrown you for a loop? Sure. I think one of the greatest surprises for me has been that just because I have autism doesn't mean I can't pick up on the social cues necessary to do therapy. I think that was sort of one of those things where I always sort of feared like I'd be no good at this. But as I worked with people who were supportive, it was just like, yeah, you can do this. So let's go back a little bit. What were some of the signs that led you to pursue a, uh, an autism diagnosis or what, what led you to get the autism diagnosis? So I had a car wreck at 18 and no one ever taught me that like, hey, you need to stay at the accident. So I left and then I called the cops. Cause, but, but when you think about that process of like hitting and running and leaving and coming back, like there's very much a process of like missing a social cue there. And so it wasn't so much that it cued me in, it cued my parents in, like really moved forward with looking at getting me a diagnosis. And then it's just kind of made sense since I got it. So our son Isaac, he has a lot of anxiety when things change, like when the weather is bad and the pool has to close because of the weather and just things like that would interrupt his schedule that gives him a lot of anxiety. He, he's doing better, but it's still a challenge for him. It sounds like he benefits from the structure a lot. Like it sort of helps him control his anxiety a little bit. Yeah, so my wife makes a schedule for Isaac every single day. And that includes what we have um, for lunch and dinner. And we have a week-long menu. And he memorizes, memorizes that thing by heart and lives and breathes, lives and dies by that. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> <laughs> he lives and dies by that right and that can be such a good thing like to have that sort of routine and structure and being able to form your own structure when that goes awry i imagine that's got to be really difficult you know when we travel isaac really goes with the flow uh, he doesn't really have much of a schedule he likes to get get up and go down to the breakfast area at a certain time mm -hmm. so that's kind of scheduled but otherwise he pretty much goes with the flow on that now when we're at home, Saturdays are the one day a week that we try not to deviate from the schedule, right Noah? Yeah. That day is pretty sacred with the with the schedule. When we deviate from that, it's it's really hard for him and it drives everyone else a little bit crazy. Yep. That sounds challenging but rewarding all at the same time. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of um, it's kind of nice knowing what you're gonna do. There's no question about what time are you going right. to go? What are we going to do today? Well, we already know. <laughs> we benefit from it as much as it does. Yeah. That's awesome. For better That's... or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it depends on the day, but really, like, you know what's going down. You know how it's going to go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know for me, like, schedules are really, like, predictability is a way I control my anxiety, like, my own anxiety, like, you it really does help to sort of, and it's, it's hard because as a therapist, you're, there's so many curveballs that happen in practice. And so it's, I don't know. It's a, it's cool that like, it's possible to do these skills, but it sounds like he's really successful <laughs> with your supports you, you guys give him. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's true that a lot of people, um, of all abilities could benefit from the schedule. 
Just Absolutely. You know, getting up and doing kind of routines. Um, I, I always think when you have routines, then you can build in creativity and other things as well. So if you mm-hmm. always, we always know, you know, we have to do certain things at certain times, but then this other block of time, I can do whatever. Yeah. Then I'm not really thinking about, you know, when I need to make dinner, when I need to do this, and yeah, I can just take this two or three hour chunk and do whatever I want. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think about like, just as, I just think about how like the predictability of time, just how you're saying, like, like I think about how I got through grad school. Like when I was going through grad school, I had two kids, I was single parenting um, and I was doing grad school part-time on top of an internship. But like my field instructor always used to say, spend time with your kids while you're with your kids and then do homework later. And that has always stuck with me though, for this kind of same reason, like, that's time you never get back with those people. And so, yeah, you can always predict when it's coming. So it's nice because it is something you can sort of build on top of and sort of build a life around. Are there some tools or strategies or techniques that you give your clients to do as homework? I think it just depends on kind of, so I'm not really big on homework because nobody does it half the time, but, but um, some of the time, like, when I work with people like Billy, I tend to work on like, I tend to focus on things like the cutting and the self-esteem first with the cutting. And I found this one incredibly successful with teenage girls, which is sort of like a normative teen, like not necessarily with autism, but sort of meeting them with that non judgmental spirit of MI along with addressing sort of like non tissue methods of self harm. So like, Self-harm is all about controlling something because having that sense of control gives you a little sense of relief. Um, so I look at like, okay, how do we not necessarily destroy the behavior, but change the behavior so you're not hurting yourself and risking hurting yourself more. So we look at things like, how, unless there's like dietary issues, like I work with a couple of people where that's the problem, but I look at cayenne pepper and jalapeno powder almost as a way to sort of like, de-escalate because it's enough to cause pain but it's not pain that's going to hurt the body or leave scars for that self-esteem stuff i look at gratitude journaling um because what the research shows is that gratitude disconnects us from toxic and upsetting emotions and shifts our attention kind of what we're thankful for um as far as the change in intense interest i feel like that's sort of the beauty of having autism is you usually have a lot of them so if, if somebody like Billy presented in my office, I would definitely just look at what are those other repetitive interests? Because I think picking up an interest or having something to be about is a good way to feel like you can be motivated and feel like you can accomplish something. As far as the anger goes, I mean, sleep's kind of one of those tricky things that just takes some work and finessing and really does take homework because it usually involves sleep journals and looking at what people are eating and sort of shifting that. Um, so those are just a couple examples. Is that kind of what you were looking for? Or were you looking for something else? No, that, that's very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can believe that people don't do the homework. I mean, and I think if you cultivate gratitude, it kind of shifts the attention. It, depending on the person's personality, if they're a little darker, you can give them like a, there's a word I want to use, but I'm not sure it's appropriate for air but like a, a grievance like column 
So, like, they get so many to be thankful for and so many to be angry about. But it just makes it fun to, like, play with because it just facilitates more and more of that buy-in we talked about earlier because, like you said, I mean, gratitude's just really important and it's something we have to cultivate. It doesn't come naturally. So what other advice would you give to your fellow mental health professionals? I encourage them to use MI because... I think people, I think as you guys, I'm guessing both know people with autism, people with autism are very particular. So it's okay to make mistakes um, as a mental health professional because that person, that individual with autism will definitely correct you. And like in MI, we talk about the resist the writing reflex, which is to sort of correct them back. But by allowing somebody with autism to correct you, it actually builds rapport, I think. It actually builds that credibility we talked about earlier. And I think you can build that confidence with time. I'll be off. If, if you don't feel confident about getting some, about working with somebody with autism, I'll be offering training um, later in the year, probably in the winter through UWO Claire continuing ed on autism and comorbid psychiatric conditions and with sort of a supplementary coaching program. And I can give you guys the email address to put in the program notes to reach out to me for it. What advice would you give parents who have thought about taking their son or daughter to counseling? Sure. I think persistence is key. Um, And the reason I say that is because, like I've told you earlier in the podcast, I have plenty of people who come to me who say they've been through nine different clinicians or they've tried a bunch or everybody in the system doesn't get their sort of example and there are clinicians out there i'm not the only one and it makes me glad to say i'm not the only one there aren't many but there are really good ones out there if you can find them and do the work to find them um so that's why i go back to i think finding somebody who is willing to work with your kid where they're at and not necessarily tell you how they're going to change your kid I think that's what parents should look for between a good clinician and a great clinician. Um, A good clinician will sort of say, these are the behavior changes we're going to work on, but the great clinician will really focus on, okay, what are they, what changes does your kid with autism want to make? Because your kid with autism is a person first and they have dreams, desires, hopes, and aspirations. And those are the things they should be working on. Even if you feel like the eye contact and the outbursts are the problem. If your kid wants to just work on making friends, start there because that's where the kid wants to be. And therapy is going to be so much more effective if you do. Yeah, that's really great advice, Sean. And I think this is a really good way to wrap up this episode. Don't you think, Noah? Yep, I think so. Well, Sean, thank you for joining us. I appreciate the insights. And thanks to everyone for listening to our podcast. Thanks for listening.